The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green to both residents and home practitioners. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. He delivered a talk over Zoom from his home in Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, first, I want to make sure you can hear me. So can some of you do? Thank you. And as usual, at a distance, uh, the vagarities of Wi-Fi may jump in. Uh, I do have another option. So if I am aware that we're lost for a bit within a relatively short period of time, I can switch to a different Wi-Fi. It's also good to see the Sangha, to see the temple that I love so much, to see your faces, to see the folks for joining us from all different places. And it's good to be in Sishin with you. And it's good to see uh, Shinju and uh, that the training and practice continues. This is uh, case <clears throat> number 59 from the Blue Cliff record. Zhao says, why not quote it fully? <clears throat> The pointer to this koan. Chacho includes the heavens and encompasses the earth, going beyond holy and profane. On the tips of 100 weeds, he points out the wondrous mind of Nirvana within the forest of shields and spears. He decisively, he decisively establishes the lifeline of all practitioners. But tell me, endowed with whose power can one get this way? As a guest, I cite this, so the main case, and I change the, the wording slightly to uh, have it make more sense to us. A practitioner said to Chaucho, the real way is not difficult. It only abhors choice and attachment. If you say a word, there arises choice and attachment. How then can you go about helping someone? Zhao Zhao said, why don't you quote it fully? The practitioner, in the original koan, it's monastic. The practitioner said, I only have this much in mind. Zhao Zhao said, you know, the real way is not difficult. It only abhors picking and choosing, or another translation, choice and attachment. So in this koan, the practitioner said to Zhao Zhao, the real, the real way is not difficult. It only abhors choice and attachment. If you say a word, there arises choice and attachment of picking and choosing. And there's obviously a point here. We have to make choices. As soon as we say a word, perform an action, a choice is implicit. And this, of course, is the opening lines of the Faith Mind poem. And as probably we all know, this was a favorite teaching of Zhao Zhao. This dates, by the way, is 778 to 897. And if you add that up, that's about 120 years. So he was long lived and taught for a great deal of decades. In choosing to help, isn't that picking and choosing? Choice and attachment? 
how we help. That also is a choice. Are these true statements? Does it have to be true? Sometimes true? Always true? Never true? What makes a choice discriminatory? What makes it attached? This, to me, is an interesting question. It's at the heart of a practice and realization. The practitioner points it out. If you say a word, there arises choice and attachment. How then can you go about helping someone? So much of our life is here in choices. What we choose on a micro or macro scale creates what happens to us. It's our karma. The micro scale is small thoughts, tendencies, little actions. We can almost miss that our thoughts matter, that a word matters. In that sense, almost every moment, perhaps every moment is picking and choosing. Where we put our attention, what we do, what we think. I remember Roshi Kaplow was washing the dishes in the kitchen at the Rochester Center, Zen Center. He washed a dish and passed it on. The person rinsing handed it back to him, obviously feeling it wasn't clean. Roshi rewashed it and handed it off again. And again, it was passed back. Hmm. Without a word or a gesture, Roshi passed it to the washer with a soapy sponge. And I saw in that moment that within picking and choosing, there's a great freedom. Of all of the things he could have done, he chose something that I thought helped. Where do we find our, our life? in the moment of picking and choosing. Koan like this, any koan, does not lead us to a prescribed happiness or a logical or refined way of life. Instead, koans lead us to what is already present within us. And this is not about a controlled and predictable mind. I don't know about your mind, but my mind is not predictable. And I'm not very good at controlling it. It's not about a get out of jail free card. Our mind is the jail. Our mind is also the gateway to freedom. One understanding of how koans work is that they invite us to see our life as a work of creativity, a work of art. A few years ago, 
my wife Aho and I visited Teresinstadt, Theresienstadt, which is a concentration camp in which for part of the time, children were held there, usually Jewish children, before going on to Auschwitz, before being murdered. And on display was the artwork that the children did. There were some teachers already also in prison with them. So they organized uh, art as an activity. So what did the children draw? It was amazing to see the variety, the creativity that came out of being captive in a in kind of a, not quite a full concentration camp, but a pre almost full concentration camp. One drawing was of prisoners being hung. Another was flowers in a row. Another was of several kids sunbathing. It was self-portraits. It was a picture of a family boarding a train, the last train they would ever board, of course. And this was in perhaps the worst of all possible circumstance. Their particular koan. It's not going to have a happy ending. Almost every single one of those children was murdered. And yet within that, they let go of the controlled outcome. And in its place was a beauty, an unpredictable light that shows their body, our body, in our lived being and holds before us the possibility of seeing in an unfiltered manner, seeing with the eye of our muse and applying this to our confusion, to the chaos, to the apparent linear linearity that we tend to create with our minds, to the fix that is never a fix. When we take up our life as a living koan, we find the possibility of transformation. An ethical life does not stick in, I only had this much in mind. Instead, we cultivate a deep faith in our mind without our stories, without the commercials for some unachievable, imagined, perfected result that will make us happy. So the promise goes, even though we all know that it will not make us happy. We cultivate a deep faith in the not knowing and creative ability we have to live fully with a clear intention. That's so important, a clear intention. If we're in a situation where, no, where we know we're going to die, 
and that is every one of us. What intention would be most helpful to ourselves, to living our life until that point of death? What intention would be most helpful to ourselves, to others? What clarity would shine before us as an imperative? Even though achieving that clarity may seem so far away. But I'm not asking about achieving it. I'm asking what clarity, what purpose? Because if we know that and have a deep faith in that, then in a certain sense, it's already done. Not that it's complete, but we've set ourselves on a path, a path that is whole will not be linear, will be creative, and will be open-ended. And we're going to die. Of course, this is a path, a way of continuous practice which our judging relative self will be critical of. So what? It's just my stuff. I don't pretend to know all my stuff, but I'm certainly familiar with much of it. It has some value in reminding myself where I've traveled and reminding myself to ask, what do I really need? as baggage on my journey. Do I need to take this along with me? Or can I let it go? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Does it need to be resolved? Maybe. But what is resolving? Is is resolving fixing and making it perfect? Some ideal? Or, Or is resolving being it? Or is it something else? We can't see into a koan, this koan, but especially the koan of our life, from the view of our old stuff. It's too narrow. And we're toting too much baggage. We've toted it usually for so long we don't even realize we're burdened by it. So in this practice, we're offered a choice between two ways of understanding our life. Our usual stories of habit and avoidance, going towards or away, or not dealing with, or another way. Do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Cherish doesn't say only cease to have opinions. On an ongoing basis, that's never happened to me. I wonder if it's happened to you. It's cherish opinions. Only cease to cherish them. To make them something they're not. Do not remain in the dualistic state. 
That's the cherish. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there is even a trace of this or that, of right or wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. So there's no trace. What is there? Is this something we can impose on ourselves? Or is it something we can practice, be aware of, look for, let go of when that's appropriate, hold on when that's appropriate? We're not talking here of numbness or disassociation or of distance. Yet it is a practice of moving to no traces. There is an awareness, a clarity in our mind that may or may not be there at any moment, but is something we can return to, practice. I think almost everyone who does Zazen, even from the first time, when you get up, your mind is quieter, clearer. If you've done Zazen, not just assuming the posture and so on and so forth. But if you've entered into it, there's already some depth, even if it's the first time. Chao includes the heavens and encompasses the earth going beyond holy and profane. These are choices, but nothing is stuck on one side or the other. The middle way is a path of choices without a chooser. There are choices. Where is the chooser? What good would practice do without taking it into our life of making choices? On the tips of 100 weeds, Chow Chow points out the wondrous mind of Nirvana. Within the forest of shields and spears, he decisively establishes the lifeline of all practitioners. within the forest of shields and spears. You know, where I live in Pennsylvania, there's a forest like the forest at the monastery. And the house that I live in sits essentially below the forest, but encompassed in it. And if you walk only a few yards up the, up the hill into the forest, you can't see the house. So 20 or 30 yards, you may know it's there, but you can't see it. And so amidst the forest, tree limbs, leaves, and all that is between you and the clear seeing of home, 
You have to peer. You have to look closely. And it's easy to get lost. And I'm um, even a little proud of my lack of sense of direction. I've gotten lost in many places around the world. Um, even around my home, which has been in forests. So it's easy to get lost. Within this forest of shields and spears, the difficulties and the pain of our life. Our job is to establish our lifeline. I don't think things have changed since the time of the Buddha. With the pain and the suffering and the life and death and the sickness, the prejudice, the economic disparity, the extreme cruelty, the blindness. This is the life we're in. This is ours. Our job, not just for ourselves, but for all those we meet and all those we'll never know. It's within this forest of shields and spears and to establish our lifeline and to note that we'll be thrown. I've gotten lost. I once lived in Colorado, 9,000 feet up in the mountains. There was a valley below and I went for a walk with one of my dogs and the dog was left home. And I started out in early afternoon and by the time it got dark, I realized I was really lost. And I couldn't have been more than a quarter of a mile from where I lived, but I was in a valley and, and luckily Aho let this, the other dog out. Went out on the porch and started barking. The dog I was with perked up his ears and said, looked at me and said, follow me. <laughs> so we followed. Getting lost is part of our life. Finding our way is part of our life. It's a forest. And how we navigate in that forest affects so many more people than we ourselves know. A practitioner said to Zhao the great way is not difficult. It only abhors choice and attachment. If you say a word, there arises choice and attachment. Again, I keep going back and forth in translation to make it wider and more available to us. How then can you go about helping someone? Xiao Cho said, why don't you quote it fully? The practitioner said, I only have this much in mind. Here it is before us. I only have this much in mind. This echoes throughout the world of delusion and suffering. I only have this much in mind. Thank you very much. This is our jail right here. This quick response it's in our mind that defends and attacks and pushes away. I'm only willing 
this much. No more. And I'm going to camp out here. Thank you very much. Mr. Hopwin, almost close to a thousand years later, made a comment on this koan. How do you help people, teacher? He quoted. And then he said, if you can't open your mouth, how can you teach others? How can you help others? Why not quote the saying fully? The practitioner said, uh, um, Chaucer said. And Hakwin said, there's still more of this one of the saying. Why don't you say it all? Addressing himself to the practitioner. Why don't you say it all? Nakwan says, what an extraordinary, wonderful, amazingly great teacher. It's just this. The supreme way has no difficulty. How so? My eyes look on the ground. I see mud and stones and sticks and puddles, my footprints in the mud, my shoes covered with mud. Yet in the puddle, and more subtly in the sticks and muds, is reflected the sky. Perhaps my mind's sky is crowded over and gray. But faith in mind is alive. The open blue sky is always there. Only our habit of our mind looking down. My mind, my eyes do not allow me to see the reflections within reflections, within reflections. They only see what my mind has created. Still, why not quote it fully? Even if I can only think great clouds, what about faith and mind? What does this mean? What does it mean for you in the moment of mud, of puddles, and a cloudy sky? It's not hard to be generous and alive and responsive. Well, we feel generous and alive and responsive. We all know this. What happens when there's a very cloudy sky? And again, Joe Cohen, Master Dogen points to the opportunity within our disturbance. Gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflecting in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water disturbed. Although its light is extensive and great, 
the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch across. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass, in one drop of water, or in the mud and sticks of our sight and thoughts. The whole moon, your vast, boundless mind, that of the, the whole sky, are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass in one drop of water. Very poetic, but also in the mud and sticks of what we see and what we think. Sometimes it's all we can do to remind ourselves of that. And yet in that reminding, something changes. There's a millimeter, an inch, a foot, a yard of more possibility. We stop and hesitate on the road that we're going down, a road we know so well that does not lead to anything that helps. We now have a bit of a choice. And in seeing that bit, there's more choice. Zaucho says, you know, the real way is not difficult. It only bores choice and attachment. The great way, the real way is not difficult. I'm picturing him saying this so kindly. I feel him speaking to me. This, he says, is not difficult. Can you hear me, he says. It's not difficult. But I respond, but what about? And we fill in the blanks as we move away from ourselves. What about? What about my particular feeling, problem that compels my mind to endlessly rotate around, to fixate on? And again, Chow Cho says, you know, the real way is not difficult. It only abhors choice and attachment. It's not so much a matter of letting go or not letting go but opening, opening our eyes, our mind. It's not fixing the problem. It's opening to, we are opening. How? I mean, this is all very nice words, but how? It gets very personal here really personal. I've spoken before about my relationship with my stepmom, who was a very difficult person to be with. I had deep anger and resentment towards her, rising out of our relationship with her when I was a child, and for, for very good reason. When my son was a year old, she was living in Arizona. I was in Michigan at the time. 
And I knew she would never come and see my grand, see her grandson. It would never cross her mind. So I decided to visit her. Since I was 19, I did everything I could to distance myself from her, geographically as well as emotionally. But I wanted her to meet her grandson. And she was thrown by that, the fact that I was coming. And she called one of my sisters, who I was close to, and she said, why is Ronnie coming? What, does he want money? Does he, you know, what does he want from me? She was very puzzled. I wanted to see my stepson, my stepmother, through my adult eyes. I wanted to see her in a way that I could not have before being an adult, before I began sitting, to not stop where I only had this much in mind, to have a larger understanding of her life then and our life now. And in our visit, I came to realize that although she created great harm for myself and my sisters, her personality and way of being was all she had, all she could see and understand and offer. And it was one of the first moments of my life that I, that I realized Zen practice had really shaken me up, that I did not have to be so trapped by my personality and my past. I still felt some of the anger and resentment, but it had much less power. It was exhausted and pretty used up. Oh, I could circle back and recite the songs again. But I had a pretty significant awareness that it was habit, conditioning, when to use those terms, that I didn't need to do that. I could see her with a larger light I was not the only one in the picture anymore. I asked her about her life. I had never asked her about her life. I knew some of the facts, the life she had lived, the difficulty she had of raising a child. She had one child herself as a young, unskilled, attractive woman in New York City in the 1950s. And the implications of that a previous husband dying suddenly in his 30s, and the marriage before that, a forced annulment by her parents. This was the very beginning of letting something go that was a powerful but very small story, my story. Seeing her with larger eyes, the possibility of appreciation, and yes, love, grows. What was necessary to let go and to open my eyes for this to occur? She still, still had the same difficult personality, but I could see it dif differently. Remarkably, in this instance, in response, she lowered her guard. 
she opened her heart as much as she could to allow herself her version of grace and kindness, aspects of which from her I had seldom experienced before. It might not have turned out that way. I understood that. I didn't do it for that reason. But we both had to give up something we had clung to tightly for our entire lives. But this is my story. So much depends. So much depends on my defining myself with my story. So much hangs on that. It's like I got hangers all over my body with the stories hanging on it. Each of us, of course, has our stories. They help sometimes. And also limit when our purpose is to live with our stories. They can help because within these stories is also freedom from the stories. Only after letting my story go could I look through my mother's eyes and also see what she had given me, things I had never acknowledged before as part of my story. I've spoken before of this some of what my mother has given me, perseverance, a deep faith, a demand to have a sense of rightness in my actions, a subtle morality that has nothing to do with the Judeo-Christian political right or wrong, her unlimited love for my father, which, which has blossomed in my own marriage. And to say nothing of the 10,000 meals and countless pieces of clothing washed and schooling and sick care and money. And I could go on and on for a long, long time. And all these things are very specific, very concrete. They don't exist in the words that I'm speaking of. They exist in a specific meal the lamb chops and the peas and the lima beans. Well, oh, lima beans. But anyway, there it is on my plate. So what did I give to her all that time? You know, the Italian word surus means trouble. It's not Italian. Unremitting trouble is what I gave her out of my anger and fear and resentment. When Xiaoxiao says, why not, why don't you quote it fully? He seems to be speaking about quoting the entire poem as a teaching. In response to, I only have this much mind. This is a perspective, but is there more to it? Things are things because of mind. The mind is mind because of things. Things are things because of our mind. And it echoes back that the mind is our mind because of those things. 
understand the relativity of these two and the basic reality, the unity of emptiness, which is us, which is completely us. There is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. That's us. Distinctions that arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. To seek mind with, and I'm adding this word, discriminating mind, it's the greatest of all mistakes. We can't figure our way out of this. We can't address our suffering by picking and choosing and then attaching to our choice. There is only Dharma, not many. To not pick and choose within picking and choosing is to help. This is the great way. Indeed, why not quote it fully? Indeed, what does it mean to take this poem to the very bottom of our being? Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.